takes a turn where our mantra is sharing releases shame last week was christmas with all of the sharing and gifts i happened to get a great gift of strep throat so toby is not with me we are keeping our distance but during my time watching tv and binge watching netflix i came across a really interesting and hilarious um, story about the manacled Mormon. And so we're going to get into that this week. And I'm going to tell you all about it if you haven't heard about it. So buckle up and let's get into it. All right, y'all, this is a love story, but it has a lot of twists. And Dr. Phil always says, no matter how flat you smash a pancake, there's always two sides. (laughs) That's kind of the stance that I'm taking on this one. Um, All right. So It starts with, there's this woman, her name, this is back in 1978, and there's a woman named Joyce McKinney. She's in her 20s. I think they're both in their 20s, early 20s. She is from the South. She's from North Carolina, I believe, and she heads out to Utah to go to school at BYU, and she stays with a Mormon family. There's not a whole lot of background given, at least in not the stuff that I've read so far. I watched a documentary called tabloid and it doesn't give a whole lot of background about her but I read this from some article on her and it says that she moved to Utah lived with a Mormon family and converted and then you know time goes by she meets a man named Kirk Anderson and she makes it sound like you know, it's love at first sight, at least for her. So they fall in love and she says that they talk about, you know, getting married and having children and being together forever. And according to her, all of the sudden he disappears. I think the words she uses, he evaporates. He doesn't just, you know, disappear. He completely disappears. So she hires a private investigator. And according to her, she believes that they are engaged to be married. Um, And I will say, like, I searched online and I really didn't find anywhere online that he spoke out, you know, and gave his side of the story. Um, And he probably was too embarrassed. And you'll see why as we get into the story. She hires a private investigator and finds out that he has disappeared to England. And if some of you are Mormon, you will know that most young men in their, you know, 1920s, um, they go on Mormon missions. And so he had gone on a Mormon mission to England. And I don't know because there's not his side of the story, but she made it sound like his family just whisked him away and made him go on this mission because they didn't want him to marry her. So, and they get to England and they're, I think, like scoping him out. They find him. They find the elder, um, Kirk, Elder Anderson. (laughs) And she's kind of watching him, watching his daily routine. It's just her and her accomplice. So, her best friend, her friend's name is Keith Joseph May. I probably will just call her the call him the accomplice because Keith and Kurt I get mixed up. Their names are too close. Her best friend poses as 
a investigator and they meet up they plan to meet up at a church so that her you know friend can um get the discussions or meet with the missionaries it's just a, a cover story so that she can see him so her friend goes in to the chapel and meets um elder anderson and says joyce is in the car so according to her side of the story that's where most of the story comes from is he he goes out to the car and he sees her and he's happy to see her according to her and he says they told me that you um didn't love me anymore and i'm assuming that you know it's his family told him told him that she didn't love him anymore and so she wants to take him away he she whisks him away to a like a bed and breakfast that she had rented out in the hills or something something very romantic she said she wanted to make it like a honeymoon for them you know they've reunited and um she notices that he's acting different she says that he is was one person kirk kirk one before his mission and now she's dealing with like Kirk too who seems like a clone or you know somebody who he's not himself he seems monotone and you know it's just different she obviously wants to get back the man that she fell in love with who is in her eyes Kirk one the one who's in love with her now it it's important to note probably that at later like people as part of the story later, it's found that she has like rope and some chloroform and she has a fake gun and, um, tape or something, you know, things for a kidnapping maybe. Um, but according to her, he comes willingly. So they get in the car and they drive out to this cottage and she has all his favorite foods, um, chocolate cake and fried chicken. She says, he loves her fried chicken and things that he enjoys eating in the fridge. And they are there for three days. So they have food for three days. So when they first reunite, um, she says that like she cooks for him and they slow dance and they're slow dancing and being romantic. And she can tell that he likes it. <laughs> He's into it. He's excited. Um, and so they go into the bedroom and they start kissing. And so they begin to become intimate and she can tell that he is um, resistant. Um, he's nervous. He's, he's struggling. He has this internal struggle. And, um, so she tries to make him feel comfortable. She offers to give him back rub with like some cinnamon oil or something. I don't know why that's important, but that's what she brought up <laughs> and make it more sensual. I don't know. And he has his garments on. And so she is like, she wanted to get those off. They're so ugly and gross and disgusting. And, and so she said that they threw them in the fire and burnt them. So as they continue to become intimate, she says, as they got closer to having sex, he jumps up and starts reciting uh, some some chant or something and let's see I quote she says um, by the law of the holy prophet Joseph Smith I can't touch bodies with another person in an experimental way and I don't you know and he kept repeating it over and over again and um, and so she was like oh he he has trauma so she tries to calm him down and um, 
she's like, talk to me, tell me what's going on. And I will say as a side note, like she's from the interview, from the documentary I watched, she is a, um, eccentric person. Like she, she was a beauty queen, a former beauty queen. Um, she was, I think, trying to be a model and an actress. And so, yeah, she does have a flair for dramatic. So I will say that, like, you know, this is all from her point of view. So there's probably a little bit of flair added to it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so take it for what it's worth. But um, so she tries to calm him down and he tells her how he's going to have to go through interviews and he's going to have to talk about it. If he has sex, he's going to have to tell them. And so what he's referring to is like the, you know, they do have missionary interviews. They have interviews, you know, youth interviews where they talk about things. They ask you things. They ask you about masturbation or, you know, sexual encounters and things. So he's not wrong, especially as a missionary. I've never been a missionary, so I'm not sure exactly, but I'm, uh, but I'm almost positive that missionaries have to go through that sort of questioning on a regular basis to make sure that they are staying pure, that they are remaining pure and not doing anything they're not supposed to. So realizing that he's gone through some trauma or she believes he's been brainwashed, she happens to have this sexual manual for virgins that's Christian based, she says. And so there's a part in there about sexual trauma or something. And she reads that she says she speed reads through it. And, um, she learns, or it's suggested that bondage, tying up someone, um, helps them to, to let go, I guess, um, and not hold back so much. So that's what she decides to do. And of course we don't have his side of the story, so we don't know exactly, you know, if this was consensual or not, but, um, she ties him up. And I'm assuming, like, if it's not consensual, I'm assuming that her male friend is there. She doesn't really say that he helps her, but, you know, um, and they tie him to the bed. And, um, and so then she says that they make love for, like, the, the rest of the time. And, um, that they're having a wonderful time and a beautiful time. And, and it's said that ultimately her goal is to have his baby. Um, but she doesn't, I mean, she says that they will have babies, you know, that they want to have babies. She wants to have lots of kids with him, but she never comes out and says that that was her goal for that weekend or those three days. So fast forward to them talking and, he says to her, you know, I guess we're married in, in the eyes of God now, you know, since we've had sex. And she's like, yeah. And he goes, well, let's just make it official. And so the plan is, is that they go into London and um, they're going to grab something to eat and then I guess get married or, you know, something, make it official or tell their parents or something. So she says that they go to a burger place and he's like, I'm going to go and get a paper. He gets a paper and he comes back and sits down and is shocked. And in the paper, it says that, you know, there's a Mormon missionary that has been abducted and has been missing. He says he offers to give, you know, the mission president or whoever a call and let them know that he wasn't abducted, that he's okay. So they agree that they're going to let you know, let people know that they're okay. So she calls her family 
tells them what's going on, says that she's engaged or they're getting married. And, and her dad is like, congratulations, welcome to the family. So he calls his family and tells them and they're really pissed because if you, if you are Mormon, you know, like, I guess she wasn't, um, she was a member, but maybe she wasn't active and they just didn't like her. So they didn't like the idea of them getting married. Plus he's on a mission and that's a huge no, no. (laughs) If you're Mormon, you know, um, dating or fraternizing with a woman at all is a huge no, no. Um, you could get sent home and what a shame, right? Being sent home is like the worst shame of the shame that ever shamed. And, So, um, he calls the mission president and they plan to meet. He says, I'm going to go talk to them in person. So at this point she says they sent him on a train and they plant with plans to meet up again. And after he goes and talks, but as she sends him away, she feels like she's something, you know, she's not going to see him again or it's, you know, it's not going to go well. He, he goes and he meets with the mission president or whoever he's supposed to meet with. I, I, I believe, and this is speculation, but it makes sense to me, you know, and, and the truth is in there somewhere because her side of the story is we're in love. You know, he was brainwashed and I was helping him and we're going to get married. His side is he was abducted. So I think there's maybe something in the middle. He probably loved her. She was a very attractive woman. And I have to say, like, he was not like, you know, a 10 or anything. (laughs) I don't know. But he, you know is a man he has sex with her I, I i think if i had to speculate i would say he probably had second thoughts and then um felt like you know he couldn't deal with the shame or whatever the guilt and so this was his his escape was to say you know what it wasn't completely consensual uh, you know she kidnapped me etc etc and this was his way to kind of get out of you know, that shame and guilt or being sent home or whatever. Um, but again, like there's no side. I couldn't find any side of his story being told. So it's just speculation. For those of you who are not Mormon or have never been a part of a high demand religion, it might be easy to say that uh, a response like that to create this elaborate um story of being abducted or whatever might seem a little um, excessive. And, you know, yes, in a normal situation, I completely agree. And I'm not saying that he's a complete liar. Like I said before, it's hard to tell because there's only one side to a story. Now, I'm not saying that it would be impossible for him to be a abducted. She did have her sidekick with her, her best friend who was male. Um, the elder is like, um, over six feet tall. He was over 200 pounds. She was a smaller person, five foot something. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible that, you know, he would be kidnapped or that he couldn't be kidnapped, but, um, just looking at all of the sides here, you know, like I said, I think there's truth somewhere in the middle. Um, But going back to my point, (laughs) if you've ever experienced the full uh, weight of Mormon shame, you might (laughs) know what I'm talking about when you feel like, you know what, I wish the the earth would just open up and swallow me and, you know, I could just disappear, not die, not even die, 
that's how much shame and guilt, you know, that's laid on you if you commit a sexual sin or something. And then the thought of having to go before your family, the thought of having to be sent home from a mission, which would happen to this man, the thought of, um, you know, going back on the covenants that you made in the temple because he would have made covenants in the temple, this elder, because that, you know, he would have gone to the temple before he went on his mission. And in, in those, those covenants that you make, yeah, you know, you take them very seriously. It's um, there's some part in there that if you break those covenants, then then Satan will have control over you if you go back on any part of the promises that you make, you know, in this temple today. And so, that's kind of the wording that they use on a word for word. But this is the kind of shame and guilt and manipulation um, that he's dealing with. And so, that's why I can look at the situation and this is just my opinion and say, okay you know what, maybe it would be better for him in his mind to come up with, you know, this, um, to maybe take the truth and stretch it a little bit. I'm just speculating here. But the main thing that I think I wanted to point out was that Mormon guilt, that, um, shame, that, um, purity culture. It is a very traumatic, very serious, something that weighs very heavily on you, especially especially if you've gone through the temple, especially for a young man, you know, on a mission, actively on a mission. And this was back, you know, in the 70s. And so I'm, I'm sure it was even more so than it is today getting sent home from a mission. It just has this stigma that follows you as a Mormon through your entire life. Um, so, you know, just just a little bit of perspective about the Mormon culture and that the whole purity culture that surrounds, um, you know, something like this sex out of marriage. So after he goes and he meets with his um, with the mission president, you know, she gets in contact with him. I don't know, maybe a, a day later or something. And they plan to meet up on the way to go meet with him. They get arrested. So I'm assuming he is working with the police in setting up like a, an operation to, to get her arrested because he's sticking to the story that this was not consensual. And he later says that he, um, he pretended like he loved her and he wanted to marry her so that he could get away. And so then she goes, they have a trial and, um, in the trial, she says that he, you know, they ask him if it was like consensual, if he wanted to have sex. And he said, well, the first, you know, first time or two, it wasn't, but then, you know, I started to enjoy it or something. <laughs> um, she says, how could I force a man to have sex with me? It would be like trying to put a marshmallow in a, in a parking meter, <laughs> which I've never quite heard it explained that way. But, um, you know, and I'm not a guy, so I, I'm not exactly sure. So I don't know. Draw your own conclusions. Um, but she does get out on bail and um, they're waiting for, you know, to have their trial. And sh her and her accomplice decide that they are going to leave and they skip out and head to Canada. And the funny thing is, is that they she has like a trunk full of um disguises <laughs> so they dress up i believe as nuns or at some point they dress up as nuns when they're sneaking around um but they dress up and they leave the country and i think when they leave the country 
she is she had made these name tags for them that said um, that they were deaf and that to speak slowly so, which is really smart because then they wouldn't have to really answer a lot of questions or whatever so so they get into Canada and they're trying to get through customs and it's late at night and they don't have their interpreter or they don't have somebody who speaks sign language so it's kind of like okay fine just just get through so they get through and they um head to the united states where they stay and actually to this day she's never been extradited or anything so as this plays out in the media there are pictures that are discovered that she you know has taken have to do with bondage and you know lots of sexual stuff and nude pictures and things because she was trying to portray this um persona of this very wholesome young woman and I guess in actuality she had this other side of her that was um a little more risque especially for the 70s um she to this day and in the in the interview for the documentary she claims that they were not um they were doctored photos that they weren't of her um but the the photographer who obtained the photos um, he said that they had the negatives and everything that they absolutely were. They absolutely were real photos. There were ads that they had found in newspapers that she had taken out um, offering, you know, sexual things, baths and massages and things like that for money. So kind of like an escort service that she was involved in. Um, and, and not to say that maybe this was earlier in her life and then she, you know, um, found religion and, and, you know, moved away from that. I don't know. They weren't clear on the timeline, but I mean, it's hard to say. But in 1984, she ends up being arrested because they, there's claims that she's stalking him again at his work. And um, I don't think any charges were filed um but she did say that she got a look at his wife I guess he was married and um had kids and she said she wasn't impressed she would that if his wife was better looking than she actually was then she would have you know been a lot more upset but since she felt like she was prettier than his wife that she was less upset or she felt okay about it or something which I mean let's be honest you know who hasn't seen an ex who's been with somebody and you're like okay you know (laughs) I uh I'm okay I'm better looking than that person you know it makes you feel a little bit better about the breakup even if you're not in love with them anymore it's still like okay you know um he'll never do better than me (laughs) Anyway, so I will say, I mean, there was doing a little bit of a more research outside of the um, the documentary that I watched. There was one short little um, mention in an article that she had um, developed an obsession with one of the Osmond boys and the Osmond mother I guess was not fond of her and you know didn't want any want her son to have anything to do with her so that was like nipped in the bud um but I guess it sets kind of this you know precedence of she gets obsessed with people or you know with men um so 
there probably is some truth to that. Now, interestingly enough, recently she was in the newspaper for, or newspaper, I say newspaper, what year was it? I think it was like 20, oh shoot, I didn't write it down, um, but it was fairly recently. She was the first person in the United States to have like a cloned dog because she had to have a service dog because one of her other dogs um, attacked her, a mastiff, and she blames it on the pharmacy, the 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 vet pharmacy for giving her her mastiff um, the wrong medication and he freaked out and he attacked her and pretty badly but so she has this other <laughs> she has this other dog named Booger she named Booger he was a stray and took in and was really smart and he would do things for her like get her stuff from the refrigerator or open doors for her and things so he ends up getting cancer which is really sad and he passes away and she finds out that she, there's a doctor in in Korea who can clone her dog so she ends up having five puppies cloned puppies from her original dog named Booger who she named booger all of them <laughs> but like booger boo and booger something I don't know and all different booger names but they all start with booger and so she was in the news again for that so I think it kind of lends to the idea that yeah she's a little eccentric so she um tells a story how when she was sending off they needed cells from her original dog she was sending them off you know um I guess specially shipped you know, at the airport and she could see a globe or an orb of light hovering over the shipment and knew that it was Booger's, Booger's spirit. And she said she felt God tell her, <laughs> and it's funny if you can find the clip or maybe I can find the clip, but she just uses Booger a lot in her description, in this very heartfelt description, talking about God. And she says that God told her, I have Booger <laughs> in my presence, so don't worry. And it just, um, it was funny. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, she's doing okay as far as I know now. And the love of her life, she never married or anything. She committed to be celibate and the love of her life is still living in Provo, Utah, and is married and has children. And it's not the happily ever after that she wanted um but it is an end to a story and if you get a chance check it out i watched it for free on some streaming service some some um unknown channel that i'd never heard of it has commercials but i think you can rent it like on um, amazon prime it's called tabloid and it came out in 2010 if you're interested um but yeah i found this story because I was doing some research for another episode we're going to do on Mormon folklore. Well, it's generally in the church called deep doctrine, but I like to call it folklore because it's, I mean, is there really a difference, you know? And then this story came up because there are a lot of missionary stories. If you have ever been on a mission, I have not, but you hear stories of missionaries like, oh, I heard this missionary, you know, did this or that. And it becomes like this urban legend or this tale. And I had seen uh, some missionaries talk about it or some people who had gone on a mission talk about it in, in a Reddit group. And someone piped in and said, wait a minute, 
that story has been going around a long time, but it's actually based and rooted in reality. And there's a story behind it. And that's, so that's how I found out about tabloid in this story. And so there is, it's actually based, this folklore was actually based in reality because these missionaries who kept telling this story, you know, it was a missionary that nobody ever knew or someone from another district or something, right? They didn't realize that um, it was an actual true story. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And um, hope you all had a great holiday with no sickness like me. <laughs> but I am getting better and next week we will be back we'll probably do our our um, folklore episode and there will probably be more than one because I found quite a few topics that we could talk about that I think Toby would enjoy <laughs> and have a lot to say about um, so yeah check me out on Instagram rrouting2021 and if you want shoot us an email at rrouting2021 at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you I'm going to wrap it up. Safe sex. No babies. No STIs. (laughs) See you next week. Bye.